Welcome to the third week of Easter and the third in a series of sermons. The series is entitled Grace. Uh, I want to announce again right off the bat that we've got a little bit of a contest going on right now. would love for you to take part wherever you are listening, wherever in the world you might be today. would like for you to send your images of hope during a pandemic to photo at okcfirst.com. Uh, thank you to the great folks at Bedford Camera and Video. They're helping us to adjudicate this particular contest to choose a winner. They're also going to grant a $100 gift certificate to their store. Uh, thank you for, for your participation. Here's what we need, and I'll say it again, like I said last week. We, we need you photographers to help us to find these images of hope out there. They're out there. We just need photographers to help us to find them. It is uh, the third Sunday. It is the last Sunday of April, the third Sunday in the season of Easter. But in that it's the last Sunday of April, we're really not supposed to be here. I mean, Oklahoma City First Church now has a fairly long tradition of not gathering here in this sanctuary on the last Sunday in April. It's because we are typically out there with our city, with our city, taking part in one way or another in the Memorial Marathon, the Memorial Marathon. As many of you know, last Sunday, April 19th, was the 25th anniversary of the Murrah Building bombing. It happened on April 19th, 1995. And so if you have not been in our church or perhaps uh, you don't live here, uh, let me tell you a little bit about this particular story. It was a terrible day, actually. I, I remember exactly where I was on campus over at Southern Nazarene. When I heard it, and then everybody started flipping on their TVs there in their classrooms, and then I kind of saw all these unbelievable images. Somebody set off a bomb at the Murrah building, and 168 men, women, and children were killed. Hundreds more were injured, and even more were frightened. I, I will never forget people running from the scene when they thought they saw another bomb, and then another bomb. It was terror playing out on the screen in front of us. And then we found out that while it was an act of terrorism, it wasn't international terrorism, it was domestic terrorism. We did this to ourselves in some sense, and it seemed to hurt even more. Because now we could see how far we had drifted, how far we had fallen. Words took on actions, and those actions had deadly consequences. We were a wounded city, but pretty soon after the terror of the blast, you started to see something happen. People started to gather back down at the site to see if there were ways that we could help. We started to give of our stuff. We, we volunteered. We gave blood. We even gave money until finally we actually heard these words come across our screens. They said, okay, thank you. We, we have all the gloves that we need. Thank you. We have all the flashlights that we need. Thank you. We have more blood than we can actually store. Even, even heard this. Thank you. We've got plenty of money. We've got plenty of money. Thank you for all of your help. And by the way, don't come down here and volunteer anymore. It's dangerous. We have the professionals who are now on site. So thank you for all your help. What we saw in the aftermath of the Murrah bombing was a whole city come together. We had learned a very difficult lesson, and now the healing process was beginning. And a part of that healing process 
was understood as the Oklahoma standard, the Oklahoma standard. And here's what we mean. Perhaps you still hear today this, this terminology of the Oklahoma standard. The Oklahoma standard was both a standard of excellence. We want to do things well as we recover, as we clean up, as we care for people who have been hurt or injured, or as we care for the people who are our first responders. It was a standard of excellence, but it was also a standard of care. You can even say it like this. The Oklahoma standard communicated a standard of excellent care. It became something that we were known for across the nation, maybe even around the world. It was all a part of the healing process. And then somebody had an idea. Why don't we gather every year, and why don't we gather and run this very long foot race called a marathon? Why don't we do that? And in the process, we can remember what we need to remember. We need to remember the names of the people whose lives were lost. And we need to remember how we got to that dark place so that we don't go back to that dark place. And so every year now for years and years and years, we have gathered on the last Saturday of April for the Memorial Marathon. Now, not too long ago, our, our church decided that it was time for us to take part in this incredible race. There are, there are 25,000 or more people who take, play, who take part now in the Memorial Marathon. And one day, a friend of mine, one Sunday morning, a friend of mine was running, and I had time, uh, because I wasn't teaching Sunday school that day, I had time to go out and try to see Mike as he ran across a, a giant field out there. And I went, and I, and I tried to spot Mike, and in the process of spotting Mike, I spotted thousands of people many of whom I knew, many of whom who were runners, but other people who were just standing along the way, along the path, clapping and cheering and urging people on. It was a cloud of witnesses if I've ever seen one. And it struck me that day, we, the church, are supposed to be out here, not cooped up in there. And so after that, we started to make it sort of policy around here, at least tradition, that we would have our service on the Saturday before, and we do some fun things on that Saturday before. We've even been known to line up the runner's shoes here toward the front and bless all the shoes. After the service, we go and we carb load, thanks to the fun committee who always has a lot of pasta back there for us to carb load. And then early, early the next morning, we go as a church to take part. We go as a church to take part. Now, some run, and, and some run the full marathon. Those are crazy people. Some people run the half marathon. Other people gather as relay teams of five. Then other people walk, but then lots of other people from our church gather to cheer, to clap, to, ur to urge people on, and to encourage. It has become an important moment, not just for our church, but for our city, for our church, and for our city. If you get there early enough on the day of the marathon, you can hear how quiet 25,000 people can be as we, as we honor the 168 who died with 168 seconds of silence. It's unbelievable. It's it's mostly dark. There is only the light of the street lights and some sunlight, the sunrise. And it feels like church. It feels very spiritual. The, the spirit is thick, I would say, in that place. 
And then the race begins, and there's this mass of humanity, and it's an incredible thing. And everybody is, is obviously on a journey of some kind. But if you're standing where I am, typically standing and watching and clapping, right, you can see people of all shapes and sizes. And it's a fascinating thing to watch people run by and say, man, I bet that's a story. Man, I bet that's a story. Man, I bet that's a story. I bet that's a story. But all of these stories are gathered up on the day of the marathon and all are on an incredible journey. And in the process of participating in the marathon, whether as a, a runner or maybe as a run walker or just a walker or as someone who just comes to cheer, in, in the process of participating, we are shaped. We are shaped as a people. Last Sunday, there was a program that aired on all of our local stations it was an hour-long program, and we will make sure that you see that link again. We put it on our Facebook page, but we'll make sure you see this link again. It is an hour-long show about the, about the bombing and about all that happens to try to commemorate and to remember what happened in the lead-up to the bombing, but also the healing process that took place afterwards. As a part of that hour-long show that we saw last Sunday, our mayor had some poignant, poignant words, and I want you to hear just a little bit of what he said. I ask you to consider this morning that this sacred place is a sober reminder that humanity is in fact capable of such evil things, even here in the United States, even here in Oklahoma, and that we all have an obligation to speak up and to reject words of dehumanization, words that divide us, words that cast others as our enemy. Right now, I hear such words coming out of the mouths of some of the most prominent people in our country. And I see them echoed in daily life by those who know better. We should know how this story ends. But let this place be a reminder. We must have better conversations. We must reject dehumanization. We must love one another. Those are the lessons I hope we will continue to carry from this event today and all the days that lie ahead. That is the Oklahoma standard I believe in. The standard that the people of Oklahoma showed in the hours that followed this evil act. We didn't ask survivors what political party they were as we pulled them from the ruins. We didn't ask the rescue workers how they voted in the last election before we served them lunch. We loved all, we accepted all. That's who we are. That's who we should always be. I'm proud of us for leading by example, and I think we always will. To the people of Oklahoma City, I say, it is our unique obligation to carry these lessons forward. We did not choose this obligation. It was given to us. But we must carry the load so that our people will not have died in vain. We must speak with the authority of those who will always have a scar to which we can point in the heart of our downtown. We know better than most Americans what happens when empathy, love, and understanding are lost. We must be the first ones to always say, we're all in this together. Let's listen to each other and let's find common ground. Thank you for sharing some time this morning to remember what happened here 25 years ago today and to consider what it means to us now. If we carry the lessons of April 19th forward, this sacred place will be relevant 50 years hence, 100 years hence, and forever. May God bless the families of those who were lost, those who survived, those who came to our rescue, and to those changed forever. 
Thank you, Mayor. In fact, the mayor is actually going to come on our podcast here in a couple of weeks to talk more about the bombing, about the anniversary, and about how he sees things working out here in our city. I have a paragraph I've written, and forgive me, I'm just going to read it because I want to make sure that we hear it and I want to make sure that we retain it because it's going to come back around later. So we at Oklahoma City First Church, we participate in the marathon, not because it's a foot race, but because it is a journey representative of another journey. The journey from ugly words to dangerous thoughts to unspeakable violence to unbearable suffering, then to healing, more healing, and finally to lessons learned, then to hope, and then to future. We participate intentionally in order to remember and to be shaped by this particular story. We remember the terrible act of violence with a memorial filled with physical reminders like a survivor tree. We remember the lives lost with 168 seconds of silence. We remember the breathtaking healing and recovery efforts by running, by walking, by cheering others on. And in the process, we are shaped by the story to do better, to be better. We are shaped by the story to hope and to hope actively. Not coincidentally, the book of Luke is also a book of stories and journeys. It seems like in the book of Luke, Jesus or somebody is always on a journey. And for sure, today's passage of scripture out of Luke 24, we have Cleopas and a companion on a journey when Jesus himself shows up. You've already heard a couple of these verses read, but hear them again. Now on that same day, Now, this was the third day after the crucifixion, so that should trigger something for us. This is on Resurrection Day, and Jesus has already started to appear to different people, but these two walking along the road have not seen Jesus just yet. Now, on that same day, two of them are going to a village called Emmaus, about seven, it's actually about seven and a half miles from Jerusalem, which is fascinating to me because seven and a half miles equals 12 kilometers, and 12 kilometers is the length of the longest leg of the five-person relay that we run at the Memorial Marathon. So about the exact same distance as that longest leg of the marathon is the distance from Jerusalem to Emmaus. So that's the trek that they were taking And they were talking with each other about all of these things that had happened in Jerusalem. Verse 15, while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, now what are you discussing with each other as you walk along? They stopped and stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, really? Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? Jesus, completely playing along, said, what things are you talking about? And they replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified. But we had hoped that he was the Messiah that we wanted him to be. We had hoped that he was the one to finally rescue and redeem Israel. So 
what we can say now about Cleopas and perhaps even the companion with Cleopas is this. Jesus had not lived up to expectations. They had a certain expectation for their Messiah. And thinking that Jesus was that Messiah, they had certain expectations for Jesus. And Jesus, in being killed, (laughs) did not live up to those expectations. And they were heartbroken, crestfallen. Perhaps they were even frightened themselves. They were certain that Jesus had failed to live up to the high calling of a Messiah. They continued on. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it's now the third day since these things took place. And moreover, stranger, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning while it was still dark. And when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. And so you get the impression as they get to this point in the story that Cleopas and the companion They actually didn't believe the report of the women. They they would not allow themselves to believe that the Jesus that they saw humiliated, excommunicated for all intents and purposes, and executed, they would not allow themselves to believe that Jesus had been anything other than a fraud and a failure. Now, a prophet, but certainly not the Messiah that we need for him to be. Now, uh, Jesus is frustrated with them. (laughs) They have at their disposal the Scriptures. And it's Jesus' understanding that the Scriptures, when read and reread, when the stories are told and retold faithfully, it's Jesus' opinion that it all comes together in a particular kind of, let's say, a constellation. In Jesus' mind, all of these verses and all of these chapters and all of these books and all of these stories are stars in the sky. And when you draw all the the stars together just right, you get a particular constellation. And Cleopas and the companion of Cleopas are not looking at the right stars. They certainly aren't looking at the right constellation. And Jesus was finally, he had just had it. And so a harsh Jesus says this to them. How foolish you are. (laughs) And how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And watch this. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself, though he still remained hidden from their sight, the things about himself in all the scriptures. He took all of their scriptures He took all of their religious knowledge, all of their scriptural knowledge. He took apart the constellation that they were looking at, and he redrew a different image so that they could see that perhaps this Jesus did go about things the right way. Perhaps they had been wrong to estimate the Messiah in these certain categories while leaving out the capacity that the Messiah might have to love to the point of suffering. Now, There was something about this story. Though these two people along the road, they still didn't recognize Jesus, but there was something compelling about this person and especially about this story. Verse 28, 
As they came near the village to which they were going, Jesus, still playing with them, kept walking ahead as if he were going on. But they said, hang on a second. We need to hear more about this. Stay with us because it's almost evening and the day now is nearly over. It's not safe for you to keep walking and we want to hear more anyway. And so Jesus said, okay. And he went in to stay with them. And a meal was served. And see if any of this sounds familiar to you. When he was at the table with them, he took bread. He blessed it. He broke it. He gave it to them. Whether or not that sounds familiar to you, it was very familiar to the people, to Cleopas and the companion there in the house, because it was at that moment that their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And they recognized him. The resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, made Jesus' life make sense. The resurrection of Christ made Jesus' life make sense to Cleopas and the companion. The resurrection. The resurrection, all of the suffering and all of the things that were borne out in Christ's crucifixion and then his resurrection made the church make sense. Verse 32, they said to each other, after he had vanished, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? And here's what they do. That same hour, they got up and they returned to Jerusalem. They made that 12K run all the way back. And they found the 11 and their companions gathered together. And they were saying, the Lord has risen indeed and he has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. In the breaking of the bread. The resurrection made Christ's life now make sense. The resurrection made Cleopas' life as a believer now make sense. The resurrection makes our life as the body of Christ now make sense. There is life after death. There is hope. We have in our office a little tree. It's back toward my office. And if you'll remember, we had a, a sermon series a while back that was called Rooted. And we had a, a series of sermons that had to do with trees and more specifically had to do with roots. And, and on one of those Sundays, uh, we played a video and Zach and I went all the way down to the Murrah Memorial. We went down there and we interviewed a man who was the park ranger down there who had a great hat. If you'll remember, he had a great hat. And he told us all that we needed to know about the survivor tree. And we were so taken with how it was that the survivor tree actually survived this deathly event that we knew we needed a part of it. Come to find out, you can get a part of it. This is actually a sapling of the survivor tree. And it has grown quite a bit until now. I mean, it looks pretty good. It looks pretty good. We're growing our own survivor tree. Now, why did we do that? Because it was super important to me. It was super important to me that you would have some sort of tangible representation that there can, in fact, be life after death and deathly situations. 
It was super important to me that you would see, that you would see with your own eyes, perhaps if you get a chance sometime, that you could touch with your own hands this tangible reminder that there can be life after destruction, that there can be life after deathly situations, life after catastrophic situations, life after COVID-19. Super important to me that we have the images of resurrection around us. And so we have a little tree that someday will be a giant tree. But that's not the only thing that we do. Each week, when we're here together, at the end of the sermon, we always gather around a table that is typically right here. To be honest with you, I miss a whole lot about our worship gatherings. I miss a whole lot about it. I, I miss the people that I always see in their characteristic spots around the sanctuary. I, I miss seeing people in the hallways, I, but I miss hearing you sing. I, I, I miss standing right there, and I kind of have my back to the entire congregation, and sometimes I'm singing full blast, and sometimes I am listening to you sing full blast, and I miss it. I miss congregational greeting. I, I miss that. I think I miss most our time around the table. Because our time around the table does what the survivor tree sapling does for us. Our time around the table is a weekly reminder that there is life after death. Our time around the table is a tangible reminder that the risen Christ is among us. Remember the, remember the uh, paragraph I read for you earlier. Here's that same paragraph, but a few of the words have been changed. We participate in this particular meal, meal each week, and it is unlike any other meal because it is representative of a journey. It's a representative of a journey from ugly words to dangerous thoughts to unspeakable violence to unbearable suffering, but then finally to healing and more healing and then to lessons learned to hope and future. And we participate in this meal and around this table intentionally in order to remember and to be shaped by this particular story. We remember the terrible act of violence with a memorial filled with tangible reminders we remember the life lost with a moment of reflective silence. We remember the breathtaking healing and the recovery effort. And in the process, we are shaped by this story to do better, to be better. And we are shaped by the story to hope and hope actively. In other words, like Cleopas, like Cleopas, we hear this resurrection story. And with it, somehow God is able to help us to make sense of our own lives of our own deathly situations, of our own terror and horror, of our fears, even in the midst of a pandemic. And so resurrection grace arrives every week as we gather around this table. Resurrection grace arrives every week to help us to make sense of stories and journeys. Yes, Jesus' story and journey. And yes, Cleopas' story and journey. But yes, also the body of Christ's story and journey. Our gathered up story is OKC first, our story and journey. And each of us, too, give an opportunity 
with the resources provided in the resurrection, Christ can help us to make sense of our own stories, pain and all. Resurrection grace arranges the pieces. Resurrection grace reminds us to remember. Resurrection grace reveals the Christ living in our midst. That's what we get to do each week around this table. And I miss it. And I miss it. I spoke with a friend this morning and with tears in his eyes, he said, I got to get back around that table. <laughs> I got to get back around that table. I, I missed what was happening to me week after week after week around the table. There was this cumulative effect, and I don't know when we're going to be able to do it, but I miss getting back together, and I'm going to be one of the first people in line. I got to get back around that table because I need what comes to me in that moment. I need those resurrection resources. I need that resurrection grace to help me to make sense of everything. I would remind us, though, that the bread and the cup, as important as they are, do not conjure the presence of the resurrected Christ. The bread and the cup and the words that are set up front it's not a spell. It's not some sort of an incantation. And once we finally say it or say it right, then finally Jesus is on the scene. No, the, the bread and the cup are for us. <laughs> God doesn't need the reminder. The resurrected Christ doesn't need the reminder. We're the ones that tend to need tangible reminders that in fact, yep, Jesus is around. The bread and the cup don't conjure the presence of God. So is it possible that we could still have a moment here together, even right now, that, help, that will help us to remember and perhaps even open our eyes, open our eyes to the living, resurrected Christ who helps to make sense of all things? We are, as a church, we are a church that values the Eucharist the Lord's table, communion, and so we practice it every single week. And like this man I was talking to this morning, I miss it too. I miss it desperately. I miss it terribly. And I don't want to be that pastor. I don't, I don't want to try to do something cute and technological with it. And maybe there is an idea that I just haven't stumbled on yet. But right now, here's what I feel like. I feel like we're just fasting it. We're fasting the Eucharist. And, and funny things happen, they're good, funny things happen when you fast. I, I think you grow in your appreciation for the thing that you are without. But I think we can have a Eucharistic moment today. A friend of mine by the name of Tim Hahn has written a prayer. And he, he's even entitled this prayer, A Eucharistic Prayer for Isolation. <laughs> Tim Hahn used to be part of this fellowship. And I want to read, I want to read this liturgy for you. And I hope that in the process of reading this prayer, and Jason will follow this prayer with, with prayers of the people, prayers of intercession. But my hope is during this first part of this Eucharistic prayer that you'll remember that we don't conjure the very presence of the resurrected Christ with the bread and with the cup. We just reveal it. Maybe the words of this prayer will reveal it in your mind, in your heart, in your household, 
and in our church all over again today. So I'm going to read this for us now. Pray along if you'd like. The Lord is with you. Lift up your hearts, be they tired, lonely, anxious, fearful, or empty. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right even now to give thanks and praise. It is right, though little seems right in our world today, to give thanks to you, ever-present God, sustainer of heaven and earth. For by the breath of your spirit, sounds familiar, you are nearer than our own breath more immediate than our own sensations, more interior than our own thoughts. You are the cause of all light and life. And so we join our voices with all the heavenly hosts in this our hymn of praise. And we sing, holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Holy and gracious God, in your infinite love, you made us for yourself. And our story has been one of repeated attempts at separation from you. But you are the one who led your people, Abraham, Hagar, and Ishmael, Jacob, Moses, and all Israel, into the solitary wilderness of the desert. You sat with Elijah and the Negev, and walked with him to Mount Horeb. You sent your only son, Jesus Christ, to heal our separation from you, and in doing so, he tread the lonely paths of the wilderness, of prayer, and of the cross and the tomb. And we remember that he said to his disciples, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Church, I have a few more words to read, but it would be appropriate right now for this moment to fall silent, for you to pray to the God who loves you and is present with you now. Seeking then, only and ever to be united to him, we proclaim the mystery of our faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. We remember today, O oh God, your many acts of redemption, your provision of life for your creation via the path of loneliness and isolation, recalling especially the ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ we offer you, ourselves, and our lives. We confess that you are present in the Holy Sacrament, and we love you above all things, desiring never to be parted from you. And though we cannot receive you in the bread and the cup, we ask that you draw near to our hearts today, that you may lay before us the stale meal of our distance and the bitter cup of our loneliness and bid us eat and drink 
to your promise of new and unending life. We love you, Lord. Give us eyes to see you. And now, God, hear us as we pray for one another.